วัสดีค่ะยินดีต้อนรับเข้าสู่ Bangkok Off Stage Podcast Thai English รายการแรกที่จะพาไปเจาะลึกแวดวงศิลปะการแสดงในกรุงเทพ Hello and welcome to the Bangkok Off Stage Podcast the first bilingual podcast on the Bangkok performing arts scene I'm Gelta and I'm Amitha Back in August, Bangkok Offstage sat down for a conversation with arts critics and writers Corey Tan from Singapore and Katrina Stewart Santiago from the Philippines. They reflect on how they became critics, the intersection of writing and activism in their works, and the place of art and arts criticism in the world turns upside down. This episode is in English. ช่วงเดือนสิงหาคมที่ผ่านมา Bangkok Offstage ได้ไปพูดคุยแลกเปลี่ยนความคิดเห็นเกี่ยวกับการวิจารณ์ศิลปะกับสองนักวิจารณ์และนักเขียนคอริแทนจากประเทศสิงคโปร์และ Katrina Stewart Santiago จากประเทศฟิลิปปินส์ทั้งคู่นะคะได้เล่าให้เราฟังถึงการเข้าสู่เส้นทางการวิจารณ์ความสัมพันธ์ระหว่างงานเขียนและการขับเคลื่อนสังคมรวมถึงบทบาทของศิลปะและการวิจารณ์ศิลปะในยุคที่ทุกอย่างเปลี่ยนไปเอพิโซดนี้เป็นภาษาอังกฤษค่ะ Hi Corey, hi Katrina. Welcome to Bangkok Off Stage. Thank you for being on the show. Hey, good afternoon. It's great to be here. It's really great to be here. Thank you. Uh, we'll start off with the first question: um, When and how did you become a writer or slash critic? We we can discuss the 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 two labels as well. <laughs> you first, Corey. Wow, we're jumping right into it. Um, How did I become a writer or critic? Um, it's interesting that the, the terms tend to be uh, conflated in that way. That critique tends to be equated as writing. Um, I I do think I, I I think I can call myself a writer. I think I do strive to be a critic. <laughs> um, it's it's always a work in progress. Um, but I think I began. I took a a, a theater class when I was in. I guess the equivalent of senior high school in Singapore. Um, and while I was terrified of performing, I absolutely loved being in the space with others, um, being very attentive to what they were doing and what they were creating. Thinking about, um, I think even at the age of, of 17 or 18, like why they would make certain decisions or, or what kind of contexts were coming into the room. And and while I think. I never had the courage to perform. I've always been in the room with performance, so I think even from that time, thinking about them being with theatre, I've always loved being a witness to performance, and I think that has grown over time. And I think now, maybe more broadly speaking, as a critic and writer, not just a witness to performance, but everything else that takes place within our communities, our state, our region. Um, Yeah, so I think my entry point was always through witnessing, observing, paying attention, and then writing about these things that I was paying attention to. Mm. Uh, did you did you start off with when it comes to professionally writing? Do you start off with uh, arts theater criticism, or did you start off with something else, like journalism? Or I think I was thrown quite into the deep end um, when it came to arts writing and journalism. Um, I. At a very young age, took up a scholarship um, to do to be attached to a very large mainstream media company uh, institution in Singapore, 
So they offered me a sum of money to do my undergraduate education. And then in return, I would be their indentured journalist for six years upon my return. So I had very little training, even though I was called a journalist, uh, uh, professionally speaking, which is why I think I always have questions about what it means to have a professional training or professional background in writing and criticism, because I think a lot of it comes from the practice of doing it. And, and even if you have a professional title of journalist as a rookie reporter, you make so many mistakes and you're really floundering as you try to situate yourself within an environment. Um, so I came back to Singapore after my undergraduate education and I started writing straight away. And of course, as with all early writing, it was awful. Um, um, I think I thoroughly loved um, being with performance and writing about performance, but it took a long time for me to find what I could offer um, to the theatre community I was with and to really think of my role as not an, yes, an outsider to some extent, but also someone contributing to this ecology um, took, I think, the entire span of time I was with the newspaper. So, so I, I suppose that's when I started writing professionally. I would start out writing interviews, features with artists. That's where I began for the first year or so. And then the second year, um, my editor kind of threw me into the deep end and said, hey, I think you're ready to go review performances um, and and so I, I started there and I, I do sometimes think about those early pieces I wrote and cringe <laughs> because I was 23 24 you know what what does what does anyone know at that period of time and, and so many sensitivities around politics um, around uh, capitalism around racial relationships in Singapore that I wasn't aware of and, and not attuned to. And so I think those things um, take time to build up. I think unlike uh, where I am now, I think I lived a, quite a sheltered life as, as a young woman in Singapore. And I think becoming radical, <laughs> becoming radicalized <laughs> in my critique um, happened a little bit later on, this kind of political awakening I have. Uh, and took place I think over a longer period of time over the past decade yeah was there a period when you was there a point when you were like now I think I'm a writer or you're still not that confident about that label or now I'm, I'm a critic I recently had a discussion about this with other critics I mean I would call them critics I don't know if they claim that <laughs> um I don't know I'm still ambivalent about that I I, I do think I would use that that label but I also like the multi-hyphenate nature of what many of us do. So I have friends who are playwrights, who are producers, who are poets, and who are also critics or contribute to the critical discourse around the arts where we are. And I think that's more and more the case that we move through many of these fields. So I think along with other areas of my practice, yes, I think I would list critics alongside that. So I would say I am a researcher, I'm a practitioner, I'm a dramaturg, I'm also a critic, and it, it comes in part of the series of, of roles I play within the ecosystem, if that makes sense. Yeah. What about you, Katrina? <laughs> I was happy enough listening to Corey talk about her life. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I would pattern it after Corey's answer, actually. I, I realize now that I was kind of, I grew up with um, 
with performance around me. My my dad is a musician. Uh, my brother always worked in theater productions as a stage manager or production manager. Um, and my mom is a writer. So I think now, um, having done this for over a decade, that that kind of really already put me in that space of um, watching shows, um, learning how to talk about these shows with my parents or my brother, or um, having to process what they say about these shows if I you know, was too young to understand what was actually happening in them. Um, so I was really uh, already interested in it enough, I think, to see myself writing about it much, much later in my life. I don't think, I wasn't like Corey that uh, was doing it in college, uh, although I did uh, take up comparative literature, which meant reading a lot of texts and really getting the kind of theoretical backbone for writing about um, cultural productions early on. Um, But I think I kind of veered away from doing it just because it was expected that the lit major would end up writing about um, arts and culture. And I also didn't like the way it was being written about um, at that point. This was in the early 2000s after I graduated from college. And I realized I didn't just want to be another voice that was doing exactly the same thing. Um, it helped that I had a mother who was a writer as well and that my my brother was in the theater, um, in the theater world. And so my sense of embarrassment was very high <laughs> because I knew that anything I would write about would be something that it would mean that they would have to deal with, you know, responses from their own groups of friends, etc. And so I I really did, I think, wait to find uh, a particular voice that I was that I was confident in having. Um, I was teaching for a very long time before I started writing. And I think that kind of also, you know, talking to students every day and and analyzing texts actually allow you a sense of how different perspectives can be um, and how to battle it out in the classroom, I think helped me a lot in also fleshing out my thoughts about uh, many cultural texts. Um, And so by the time I had the, by the time I was confident enough to put up a blog, um, it was really because my brother felt that I already had a voice to write from, um, as did my mom. So parang, I really kind of, we all kind of waited, I think, without really talking about it. And at that point, I had already, I won a prize for writing creative nonfiction. And I think that kind of told everyone, okay, she might know how to write after all. <laughs> and so, um, and so the same, that same year, my brother said, okay, I can put up a site for you because he had put up my mom's blog. Um, and then it was on that site that I was writing in for two years and I was doing movie reviews and theater reviews um, without the sense of what kind of audience I had other than my parents and my brother. Um, and it was through that site that actually I got um, invitations to write for uh, mainstream publications. So I feel like on the one hand, that might have been the start of the writing, but I do think that I was kind of waiting for the right time to to 
even imagine myself as someone who wanted to be a writer. Uh, a lot of it had to do with, with you know, my high, very high sense of embarrassment <laughs> um, and a lot of insecurities, I think. That's really born of, you know, also having grown up with a mother for a writer. Um, so I knew that the bar was set so high, at least on this very personal um, level. And I realize now that it, it might really be, it, it, was a, it was just my luck to have that. Um, and I mean that in a good way because it meant that I also um, am forced to be humble about uh, whatever it is I'm able to do in my writing. Um, and the critic part, I think, I only really started calling myself that when other people started calling me that. Um, I think also because in the Philippines, there's a there's so much baggage <laughs> that goes with that term. And um, very few people call themselves critics. Uh, usually, it's a academic criticism um, that is the output of the critic in this country, which means they're putting out books on like, you know, film criticism that's very academic. Um, and I wasn't doing that. Uh, so I always felt like maybe that's not the term for me. Um, but also it brings me back to knowing after I graduated from college that I didn't want to be doing um, the popular criticism that I was seeing in the broadsheets anyway, that I didn't want to be so embroiled in these uh, systems of patronage that I would not have the freedom to actually say what I wanted. And I knew that if I had fallen into that trap, there was no way to get out of it anymore. Um, and so I think to some extent, I also took so much time to call myself and to start practicing my writing because I wanted to be sure that I was going in a direction that was different from that. Um, I'd like to think I'm in, still in that direction. It, it was interesting because, oh, sorry, what kind of uh, writer was your mother? What kind, um, what type of writing did she do? Uh, my mom's a, a popular historian. So her okay. body of work is in history. But she was also actually doing reviews. Uh, mm -hmm. For much of the time that I was growing up, she was, uh, she maintained a column called Notes of a TV Junkie. So she was doing uh, popular culture reviews um, for a full decade, uh, I wow. think. For, and she was actually able to move that column across different publications. So it was a very it was a very hard act to follow. I, I one of the first things I remember um, being asked when I was in college by one of my teachers who knew of her column was whether I wanted to revive it um, and be the person who's writing about television and. And I said no, <laughs> because it felt like such a burden. And I, and you know, when you grow up seeing your mom writing, it kind of also um, makes you realize how difficult a job it is. Uh, I think I, I kind of also was reacting to, you know, all the late nights, et cetera, et cetera, meeting a deadline. But my mom was also writing for television. She, she did the, she did the first version of the Filipino Sesame Street. So I grew up with her 
pulling you know all nighters uh, sitting down with editors for um, TV shows like that or doing documentaries on national issues so it was really just you know a hard uh, thing to imagine myself doing because not because I I felt that I might not be able to do it but more than that I felt that the commitment might not be something that I was ready for Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting background for both of you. So why do you, you, you know, con- still continue to write up until now? And why art criticism specifically? Actually, maybe I could just add on to what Katrina was saying, because I find it so interesting to observe that we, had, we both carry different kinds of impositions or burdens. So I think with Katrina, it's this feeling, oh, my mom is a, is a writer, is a popular historian, is very established in this field. Um, and also that you had the time, right, Katrina, to shape your voice on your own private uh, forum, almost, before entering a more uh, mainstream or institutional type of practice. So I think that gave you a lot more agency to shape the kind of voice you had and what you knew you wanted to bring to the table. I think reflecting on it now, I had a very different experience where I was kind of forced to shape my writing or it was massaged to fit the mold of a certain kind of state-aligned uh, institution and it has taken many years to to unlearn that and I think I'm still in the process of unlearning a culture of fear and and self-censorship which I think more broadly speaking is quite rife in Singapore um, and to to widen the space for my own discourse or what I felt was important to be written about and valued, right? Especially in the pages of a national broadsheet where the more experimental, provocative or small work that I thought was incredibly important is not deemed important um, by certain powers that be, for example. So I think we maybe contend with different kinds of lineages um, in this coming to writing. And I'm almost envious that you grew up in this kind of uh, family. I was so supportive of your cultural upbringing because I never encountered theater until I was 18. And it was the first time when, when I realized, oh, the literary text we're reading, just by rote, <laughs> the Shakespearean text we're reading, wait, they're meant to be performed? What does that mean? You know, I never stepped into a theater. Um, and, and it was only later on that, that these kinds of baggages of like what is a sophisticated taste that a critic is expected to have began to weigh on me because I never had that practice, right? I wasn't shaped in a cultural milieu. I, I had, a, I think, very ordinary lower to low, middle-class childhood in, in Singapore. No exposure to, to what is you know, named as refined or, or culturally elite. And so I think the expectation that the critic had to be this bearer of aesthetic taste, um, maybe that feeds into your question, Anne, um, um, was something I, I contended with a lot, I think, as, as a rookie reporter at, at a mainstream newspaper that, oh, you like this? Isn't that kind of, you know, low class? <laughs> You know, and, and you like that, you know, that kind of disparaging tone of voice with which you would expect a critic to, to pass judgment. So I think maybe shared by Katrina, I had a sense of discomfort about, you know, what is supposed to be enjoyed and what is considered a guilty pleasure and, and what is high art, you know, and what is supposed to be welcomed and, and written about with enthusiasm. Um, and, and that even to show enthusiasm is like unbecoming of a critic, right? That this kind of visceral, emotional effect that you feel about a work. 
like, oh, aren't you supposed to be aloof and, and, and distant and, and, and cast judgment in that way? So I think um, very much throughout my time um, at the newspaper, I was figuring out a way to communicate my love for, for performance and even performance that um, people, that may not conform to what people think is aesthetic or, or conforms to standards of, of taste. So I think there was, there was part of a struggle around democratizing arts criticism almost that, that and maybe that's part, also part of the hesitation why I want to call it, like similar to Katrina, I don't want to claim that title so much because I feel like once you are that critic, then, oh, you become the arbiter of taste and, I, and I'm very resistant to that. Like, I, I don't think it should be one person's job to arbitrate, you know, what is good taste and what is in bad taste. So that's something I continue to struggle with, I think. Um, and I'm moving away from, I'm less interested in, in, in doing that and more interested in, in broader ways in which art intersects with um, the state, with the political, um, with our various communities. So I very much feel that coming back to your question about arts and criticism, um, I have a great love for how many critical debates can manifest through performance and be subversive and provocative in performance, often in very clever ways in, in a state where um, people tread carefully. Um, and now that I've been doing it for some time, I cannot imagine myself being away from, from, from that. Um, and there's always the thrill of seeing artists come together to create something that so brilliantly reflects or provokes or captures or evokes something about the time in which we live in, um, in a way that I think very few other mediums can. And it's always like, I feel like, oh, it's such a privilege and a pleasure to be able to bear witness to these moments, um, even if they are considered failures or not considered good, quote unquote, good work. It's always a pleasure to be there in the thick of it, watching someone attempt to figure their way through something. Um, yeah. Katrina, go ahead. Um, Harry said so much. I just like want to answer her. <laughs> I just want to listen to Katrina. I know, I can just, I can just listen to Corey. <laughs> Um, I think that I ended up with art criticism because the opportunity uh, became available to me. Um, the first person, and I, I, I think unlike Corey, there was a, there certainly were benefits to uh, living in a so-called democracy. No, so we, I had been part of an arts of a criticism fellowship um, with one of the universities, and uh, one of the panelists there one of the organizers actually was the editor for arts and books in the philippine daily inquirer and at the end of that uh, they totally lambasted my scholarly criticism um, in that panel but after the 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 workshop he messaged me and said i think you can write for the inquirer um and so he was actually the one who was assigning the texts to me. And the first one that he assigned was a series of interviews with young artists who were being awarded for you know, innovative art or something like that. And, um, and I had told him I wasn't sure I could do it, that it would be the first time I was doing it, that maybe I might not have you know, the voice for it or the perspective. And he said, no, you can do it. 
And so, I mean, to some extent, like Corey, I was, you know, just being thrown into that pool and being told that given what I know of you, you can actually do this already. Um, and then he just started assigning um, exhibits that I could review and then uh, theater productions that I could review. But I was really part of a, you know, a set of about five or six um, freelance contributors to the to the newspaper. And it was very competitive. I wasn't very competitive. Um, I couldn't churn out articles fast enough. Um, I tended to really spend time thinking about what I was writing. So when I got an invitation to write for GMA News Online, which was new at the time, and GMA is like one of the largest media um, entities in the Philippines, um, I said yes. And I, again, was very lucky with that editor. And I think that's really where I was able to build a stronger voice and a body of work because he let me choose what I was going to write about. He, you know, it didn't matter if it was some obscure exhibition in some faraway warehouse at the end of the city. Um, if I wrote about it, then he would publish it. And um, it was very rare that he intervened or that he assigned anything. It was always... Um, I was buying my own tickets to the shows or I would get invitations and I would... Um, write about it and he would publish. There was like no instance that he didn't publish a submission. And so I had that kind of freedom, I think, to dictate what I felt was important to discuss regardless of whether I liked it or not. Um, it was always about, as opposed to the idea that I was an arbiter of taste, um, I was always, I always felt like the critical work I was doing was about um, valuing a particular uh, work at any given time. And to value doesn't mean I have to praise it. It can also mean that I feel that this project was wanting to do something important, but might have failed at it. And I want to talk about that failure so we can do better. So I think it was that kind of voice also that um, was encouraged in that space. Um, at least my editor appreciated it. So, um, and that was enough. And I think he kind of also realized there was a there was an audience for it. Um, it wasn't the same audience that um, that he imagined. I think in the beginning, um, because later on he realized that um, people who were reading my art reviews and my theater reviews were also quite interested in movie reviews of like popular film, and so he realized that the voice was actually what mattered. People wanted to hear what this particular person was saying. Um, about cultural productions across the board. And so that kind of also was really what encouraged me to, in the end, call myself a critic to some extent because also he allowed me to fashion that term into something that was mine. Um, it might not apply to many, especially not in the Philippines, but I think that three-year stint um, was really what um, allowed me to imagine this as a career. Um, because also it was well-paying. He paid me well. Um, and I was most well-paid in that, in that uh, publication, I think. Um, and so it kind of, it was really like a full-time freelance thing that kind of fed me for those three years. And I think that that's a rarity. And I was very lucky to have been able to do that. Um, would you... 
Corey, you do, would you like to add anything to that or? I'm still mulling over it, but I, okay. I, I, I'm just marveling okay. <laughs> at Katrina's kind of very, I, I feel like I've heard you, Katrina, speak about your practice more often than I speak about or articulate my own. And it's always, it's always a pleasure to, to hear her, whether she's speaking to my students or, you know, in, in <laughs> other environments in which I've invited her to speak. And now I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing how much I've also learned from her about uh, as someone who's younger um, and earlier on in my practice, how do I, now that I've been invited to more of these platforms, how do I articulate my, my practice and approach for others? So I'm just very admiringly listening <laughs> to Katrina also. So yeah, yeah, grateful to, to hear, yeah, how, how, how a, a self is formed almost, yeah, um, in relation to all these things. So yeah. Since we all write about and in this region, why do you write in English? What's your relationship to the language? And um, what does it mean to write in English in this region? Well, we're talking to each other in the, in the language that we have in common. So, so I think that is what makes it valuable. Um, I think that uh, I write in English because I, I studied in English. Um, I grew up in a household where English was, you know, we had English books all over the house. My mom writes in English. My brother uh, writes and reads in English. Um, I grew up with, a, with martial law and censorship, which meant we primarily had English shows on television. Um, so I, I feel like my generation was really, uh, we were that language was thrust on us. Um, is it a limitation? Of course. I think that on the one hand, I appreciate that I can talk to a bigger audience outside of the Philippines in English, but I do know that I'm not speaking, speaking to a bigger audience in the Philippines when I write in English. Can I write in Filipino? I, I think I can, but I don't know that the that I could in terms of the critical practice. I don't have the vocabulary for it. I don't have the, I don't have the headspace uh, for reimagining uh, my critical voice in that language yet. Um, it's uh, something I wish I could do later on. But right now, I also feel like, given where we are in the world, that the that the ability to still play around with English as a language that will communicate to a bigger uh, regional audience is as important as the task of speaking to a larger audience here. Um, I also feel like I think uh, Tagalog as a, as a language might be more useful for different forms of writing other than criticism. So I kind of try and well rationalize it in that way. It's interesting because in Thailand yeah. too, uh, critics who write in English feel, and like I'm not talking about those who have mostly studied abroad or lived abroad and who don't feel as comfortable in Thai. It's more like they lived here, they, you know, they, they've lived here for their whole lives. They, they speak Thai fluently, they can write Thai fine, but when it comes to criticism, they're like, no, it's not fun. It's not it's not a good language for it for some yeah a lot of people find that what about you Corey yeah sorry it's interesting to hear both of your reflections about where you're located I think I always associate English with loss um I 
do love the language because similar to Katrina, um, it is the language of that reflects the former colony that we were, right? the, the, our British colonial past. But I think a lot about English and loss because Singapore's bilingual policy, and I think Singapore has overly romanticized the mandatory bilingualism that we have here. So while each of us speaks English in our supposed mother tongue, I feel very little affinity with Mandarin Chinese because um, my parents' and grandparents' native languages were Teochew and Cantonese, right, reflecting where they came from in the south of China as, as immigrants. And I was never able to communicate with any of my parents and um, grandparents, both paternal and maternal, um, because of the language policy changes in Singapore during the period of time, just before I was growing up and while I was growing up, um, that, that eradicated dialect from every part of our life. So many people of my age and younger have no access to this oral history. And so I always associate my sense of English and also Mandarin with a deep and profound loss. Um, and it's also strange because I feel very little affinity to, I suppose, China as a, as a kind of uh, former homeland for my ancestors, right? Um, because we are considered, I suppose, diasporic. Um, Chinese, but I support. Yeah, I, I don't find a particular affinity to to the mainland in any sense. So I think many Anglophone Singaporeans. I I, I can't speak for Sinophone uh, Singaporeans who are Chinese, for example. Um, I think that is one of the burdens of Anglophone Chinese Singaporeans. Um, that this is very different from for Singaporeans of other racial groups who have different relationships to their history, particularly if they're indigenous or if you are um, considered Malayu, which is also a, a catch-all term for many different um, kinds of residencies in Singapore, um, or if you are from the subcontinent or South Asia or from India. So I think, yeah, I, language is quite fraught. I think in Singapore that that English has become the language of this country because it was a pragmatic decision to interface with the world through this business language. Um, and, and, you know, I was reading a bit of like Singapore theater history and um, NTU professor Kwasiren, uh, at the Nanyang Technological University, professor Kwasiren has written a book on a hundred years of Chinese theater in Singapore. And he wrote about, he was kind of collecting histories about the 50s and 60s in Singapore, where theater companies were really excited about creating a Malayan identity because of the kind of formal merger with Malaysia that Singapore would go through. And in the 1950s and 60s, Bahasa Melayu or Malay was really a, a lingua franca of this region. And you can see it in art history, the painters that we have had in Singapore, such as they captured what it was like at the time to embrace a Malayan identity as here's a picture, a painting called National Language Class where people are learning Malay formally. Um, and I don't want to romanticize the period, it's very complex, but I do mourn the loss of what could have been a shared language in this region. Um, and we really could have been a very polyglot space, I feel, that I could have spoken maybe four or five different languages, even as a child. And I see that with my Malaysian friends, right? That they easily slip through different dialects and, and languages. Um, so I feel like I'm doing a lot of catch up work now. So I've been, uh, for the past two years, I've been learning Bahasa Indonesia, which is 
mutually intelligible with Malay. So similar to Thai and Lao, I suppose, that you can kind of understand each other. Um, they're not completely similar. There are quite some dramatic differences, but it helps. Um, and uh, of course, I learned Burmese because my husband is Burmese. Um, and I think it's my act of playing catch up. Um, and, and also what it means to build regional bridges or solidarities, um, to recognize that we are not separate from the region. I think Singapore has this notion of exceptionalism that separates ourselves from this region. And I'm really struck, for example, in, in, in events such as the Asian Arts Media Roundtables, such as the one we had this year, when you have Indonesian, Malaysian, and Singaporeans in a space, what could have been when we use Malayo or Indonesian as a shared lingua franca, and now we can't. Um, and there are some of those possibilities, and I, I feel it, you know, when people translate for each other and or, or are more comfortable speaking with each other in Malay or Indonesian. And I think I always mourn the fact that English became the centering or dominant language um, instead of others. So yeah, I have a very complicated relationship with English. And like Katrina, I think I write predominantly, almost exclusively in English. I don't know if I wish I could write in Chinese, um, but I think I do hope to build um, experience in other languages. I don't strive to master them. I don't think we ever master a language. We, we only grow affectionate with it um, and, and, and learn its different nuances. So sorry, that's a very rambly answer. No, I was. Yes, I think it's just a <laughs> lot of sadness that, and loss. So, um, I, I I just wanted to add to that. I I actually because Corey has been posting um about learning Burmese, and I think one of the things that I think I I I told uh that I think Ametha and Charmila know this from the interview in Japan that I my undergraduate was actually a comparative literature with a concentration in third world and Asian studies. And so I was reading about Southeast Asia. Um, and so I was very familiar with a lot of the writers primarily from, from Southeast Asia within a given period. And that kind of, uh, th that kind of track actually also pushed me to um, learn Bahasa. I had like four years of Bahasa in college. It was my it was my foreign language when everyone was actually doing Spanish and German and you know they were doing the European languages. I had a I had a one of my mentors was Luisa Maliari who actually graduated from finished her MA in UM and she wrote it in Bahasa. And one of the things that she always told me was that there is no value in trying to to, um, in trying to talk to Southeast Asia without knowing the languages of Southeast Asia and that it was such a major limitation for her that so many of our scholars, even in the department, were actually stuck on um, reading literature in English or reading it in translation. Um, and so that was really actually a very important thing for me. It was always, I always also felt that um, Bahasa was something that we could have so easily just gotten in on because of how close we are on in Mindanao um, and how you can just cross the sea and get to Malaysia. Um, and so, and that was one of the things that also was very frustrating for me because by the time I was doing my graduate studies in the university, there wasn't really anyone to teach me uh, Bahasa. 
I couldn't continue learning it. Um, and so it kind of just, you know, I, it, it disappears when you don't practice it. Um, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot given the past year in the pandemic and having done many of these um, conversations across the region and the realization that I, it's not that I want to communicate in that language as much as I want to understand better. Um, what they are doing in that language because I really feel like the translation, so much is lost in translation. It's not that we don't trust it all the time. It's that I feel like it's the language is so crucial to the kinds of um, resistance that we actually put together. And I feel like sometimes it defies um, translation, especially in English. You know, I, I feel like it would be easier. I feel like there would it would resonate more if we were translating from Malaysian to Filipino or from Thai to Filipino instead of going by English before we get to us. Um, so yeah, so I have the same uh, language crisis as Corey. Um, we appreciate English for what it allows us to do, I think. But I, but I'd like to think that being critical of it and knowing that there's so much more out there beyond this language is actually a good thing. Yeah, and so when you write in English, it's normally like go to like broader than people in your country, right? You can go like regional and global. So when do you, so when you write, do you have like a specific specific leader in mind? Like you write for um people in your community or in your country, or you still have to think about like those who are not in your country that might read this piece. Do you have to like elaborate more or some of the stuff like and is there any difference between the leader in your imagination and your actual leader or you can go ahead yeah, <laughs> any I, of you I, can go first <laughs> yeah i was thinking a lot about this question i think maybe there are, there are infinite answers to this i think i well i do write very much for where i am located um, I also think that our writing creates its own public, if that makes sense. Like, yes, you may write towards a certain person, and sometimes maybe this is your imagined audience. Maybe this is the artist of the work who created the work. Um, sometimes I do write for people I don't think will agree with me. <laughs> um, and, and it's an interesting exercise, I think, in, in your head to write towards these audiences or these publics, but I think your, your writing creates its own public. Like the way you write invokes who will read it. And, and I think it's something I've been thinking about more recently that we create our own readership. And then what is the kind of readership I want to create with the way I write? Um, how can my writing be expansive enough um, that it can invite people on the journey I want to bring them on um, is something I've been thinking about. So yes, I think, well, we, we can't run away from imagining who might read it. And, and I think we all do that to some extent. I also do think that the writing will find its readership almost. Um, yeah, so I, I but I, I don't think I write towards an international or global audience because sometimes I see my work as quite situated, um, quite embedded within its context. And I know that the people I want to reach are predominantly either Singapore or regional. Um, I think 
that is the readership I'm invested in and I'm excited by and will also become my interlocutors. You might write towards someone who will respond to you in turn. So I think that's primarily the readership I write towards. Yeah, Katrina. Um, turn. I kind of agree. I think I've always felt, let me start by saying that I've, because I started writing on my blog, I, and because I, on the blog, you actually see like just two people read it. And so I'm going to presume it's my mom and my brother. Um, so that kind of also um, makes you not think of a reader in terms of like a number or not in the way that the younger writers now think there's readership because this is how many people shared it or liked it. So I never, I, I still don't have that kind of um, sensing of what, of my readership. Um, I do think that that allowed me to um, not care so much about a reader. Um, I always thought that I was writing because I felt something needed to be said. It didn't matter if people were going to read it or if those who read it will agree with me. And I think I've kept to that um, until now. It, it never, it, it doesn't really figure in my, in the process that I go through when I sit down to write. Having said that, um, I do think that there are particular situations where you are forced to think of, for example, um, what your editor asked you to write about and whether this is the kind of writing he expected would come out of that assignment. Um, and in those instances, I'm usually very um, particular about what kind of publication this is. If I'm writing for, say, a glossy magazine with a very fixed elite market and that caters to uh, advertisers, et cetera, et cetera, and which... Um, uses a particular uh, perspective or, or voice in, say, talking about art, then I kind of work around that already um, without losing my own perspective. You know, if it means using more flowery words, using certain kinds of adjectives I would otherwise not use um, on my blog, then, you know, it will pay my bills and I will be the better for it because I, fi I figure it's a writing exercise more than anything else. Um, and for example, if it's writing that, you know, that is about joining a contest and I know that there's already a history of, you know, types of essays that have won this contest, then I do allow myself to experiment with whatever form um, those essays come in. So I'm very, uh, what's the word for it? I think I'm, I'm very practical about uh, the way I handle my writing. Um, I'm very clear about which writing is for this particular kind of process or this particular publication. Um, it's also because it's my bread and butter. So uh, when it is something that will pay the bills, you don't really want to, uh, you don't really want to sacrifice um that kind of relationship you have with your editors. Um, and I'd like to think that they also appreciate it, that I that they see that I'm actually also experimenting with whatever form they're giving me or limitations um, and whatever audience they would like me to imagine I have. Um, but 
on a personal, um, like if I was just putting together a book that was just for me, um, then I am writing for me. Um, at most, I am writing for my mom uh, that she needs to read it and say, yeah, you can publish that. And I, I feel like that's uh, that's a very important uh, thing to hear. You know, uh, I I always tell this story to my uh, writing students that in the five years that I was doing an opinion column, the first three years of that, the first two years of those five years, all my opinion columns would pass through my mom. Like she had before my editor saw it, she had to go through it, and. It was a it was hard on her because she had to edit within a deadline and I was cramming to meet a deadline. But I felt like that was an important uh, process for me and even for her. Um, because I remember exactly which article um, and which time of the year she said that one column was okay that she didn't touch it at all. And it was such a major turning point for me as well that I realized that I might have found um, the voice that I wanted and had the skill set to actually do this uh, with a little more confidence than I had the first two years. Um, so I, I'm very... Uh, my notion of audience is really for, for that audience to have a dialogue with me. Right. or to respond to me. It's not really... So I don't worry about it a lot because they don't need to agree with me at all. Right. And I think people who worry about an audience or a readership are really the ones who who kind of believe that you need agreement. And I never feel like I need agreement. Mm. And um, you said that you you had it had to go through your mom. It's because you insisted? She insisted? or I insisted. <laughs> See, my, my level of embarrassment is <laughs> I insisted. I insisted that because at that time I was already writing, um, I had already a body of work for three years in arts and culture writing, which she never touched mm. um, because she felt that that was my expertise. Um, but when I was invited to do an opinion column, I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't ready for it or that I... I might be missing out on a lot of things when you write about you know current events and you have to churn out two articles every week um, on such current issues and so I always felt like that additional um, set of eyes was important um, and it also it wasn't just you know in terms of content but also in terms of tone like she I always needed someone I think especially in the beginning to tell me if it seemed too angry or if it seemed to, if it was at the bordering on unproductive, you know, and, and my anger levels get very high for certain issues. And so I always feel like I need that kind of, like, I always need someone to tell me, okay, this seems too much and it will actually, you know, turn people away. And I still have those people, um, even just for, you know, writing the content for Pagasa. I have like four other people telling me, okay, this might be too much. Um, so it, it it's really also still that sense that I need to be edited, that I need to be told maybe you're not, maybe this might be too much, or maybe you can do better. Can you guys talk a bit about the environment that kind of, that you are in that help foster or hinder because uh, you're, you're writing? Because earlier, Corey, you said that you 
you know, there was so much self-censorship in Singapore. This is so common. And Katrina, in your in your story, uh, in your collection of essay, Rebellions, um, you said, first, it's, it's interesting because you said you dedicated to your dad who your father, your dad, who's, whose constant love and support has allowed this independent re rebellious streak. And uh, but later on in the introduction, you also said that these are these essays are published now in this book in the original version, right? Not in the versions that were published. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, because for the for print publication, there was really no way that they could they would publish me in full. So they were always just cutting me down okay. um, to size, you know, um, which is totally different from censorship. Um, from censorship. This yeah. was just, you know, standard cutting me down to size. Um, and I just didn't want to cut me down <laughs> to size. And so I always <laughs> left it up to the editor uh, to do it for me. And I think that might be why I didn't last long in the, in the <laughs> editors hate that. I know. And, then, and I'm sure he, he got writers who were so willing to just, you know, keep to a 900 word limit. Yeah. Um, I'm sure and, there are many who don't. That's why he's like, one more of you. <laughs> and then when I when I transferred to GMA News Online, there was also actually a word count. Um, but then they realized that because I had readers and the readers were actually staying on these long-form articles, that it was okay. And so I think I always, I they allowed me uh, they allowed me freedom in terms of length. Um, they also paid me more. Uh, also because they were the ones who could see that there was an audience for it. Um, so that kind of, I think, is was the context of saying that, you know, this is the real length articles that I had. Also because um, for print, I would have some of the artists ask for the original articles. Um, because they knew that it seemed like it had been cut down to size um, when it was printed. Um, the epigraph for my dad is really about, you know, uh, I, it's, it must have been difficult raising a daughter like me. And, and I do not doubt that he agrees with that statement. So I know that he, because my mom is a writer and so it, my the ways the ways I have dealt with the world always made sense to my mom. But I think my dad is a more was always more conservative, and so I'm sure he expected uh you know a young daughter who would be less rebellious than I have turned out. And so I really felt like I still do feel like um so much of what I've been able to do is because my father has also constantly you know stepped in when I needed money, you know, just very <laughs> basic stuff that no matter how he doesn't agree with my decisions or no matter how, um, no matter how he might not really um, understand uh, why I resigned from a certain job or why I lost a certain job, mm. that he would just step in and say, do you need money? Oh, do you need money for rent? You know, and I feel like uh, that is along with editors who were very supportive. You know, uh, having that kind of uh, support as well was just as important in keeping this practice that I've been able to keep. And it's amazing um, you kind of have like two, two, like many levels of editor at home <laughs> and also in, in at work. 
you know, I don't think a, most people don't have that, I guess. So. And I'm, I think I'm the better for it. Um, yes. I, I, <laughs> and I think it also keeps me very uh, self-conscious and self-aware um, of my limitations. I like being told that I might not be doing a good job. Um, or that I might be able to improve on something. Yeah. Um, so, like many of my friends who I whose writing I also trust, um, will always get uh, you know first pass on anything that I've put together, whether it's for publication on my website or you know into a book or any other publication that I'm writing for. It's just really a. I feel like it's a good practice for any writer or creative for that matter. It's quite courageous too, because not every writer wants everyone, like some people just like send the story off to the editor and kind of pray that I won't get cut or won't be like murdered, like, you know, and then, but then, yeah, I think it takes a certain like maturity and courage and I guess like, yeah, yeah, some certain bravery to be like, here, read me, tell me where I can, I can improve. I guess. Or just humility. I think yes, it, I think it, so. it, it, I, I yeah. think it takes time to develop. That's why I said like maturity. That it yeah, takes. I, I, I think it's a. It's also an awareness that so many others are better than yes. you. <laughs> like you've and, read a lot, right? The, right. Uh, I mean, when you when you read other people's work, you realize, oh my god, I'm terrible at this. Right. <laughs> How <laughs> have I been able to survive on writing? I mean, it's really and and especially in the in the current climate and the past year in the pandemic. You know, I anyone who asks me to write anything, I tell them, I I don't know if I can still write hmm. so you'll have to walk me through this and handhold ah. throughout this process is your mom's voice still in your head when you not anymore okay I think... interesting <laughs> not anymore because i think also i've become her editor uh, oh, okay i'm the one who edits her history books Ah, interesting. Okay. So, so I think it was also an important process for both of us. Uh, it took a while before she trusted me with that position yeah. as well, and um, and it's a. I think it 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 took um the years that I've that I've spent writing and sending stuff to her. Um, so she also, I think, saw that I had evolved into someone that she could trust with her own writing. And yeah. so we, she, I think I, she has my voice in her head mm. more than I have hers now. Um, also because I'm the one who's still writing across a spectrum. Um, she's really just focused on doing history books at this point. So it's a very mm. focused exercise. Yeah. And when she's the voice, my voice that she hears is really the voice of, you know, this is too long or you're going in a direction that might not be interesting, um, which is also her voice on in my head, you know, early in my writing years. Um, so I think it's a, I've also, as I said earlier, I think, um, the amount of freedom I have had to fashion what uh, being writer and critic means is really um, something I have been lucky to get mm. uh, because now I feel um, a little more confident about what it means to be both um, in this context and even in the region. What about you, Corey? Is there a difference? Do you see a vast difference between working for a newspaper and then coming to work for Arts Equator? Is the environment completely different? At Arts Equator? 
Yeah, so maybe I want to, maybe following on from what Katrina was talking about, I'm, I'm curious, I, I love that your question asks about the broader culture of criticism, where we are located, um, and how we've had to navigate that. And I think in Singapore in particular, definitely at an institutional and statewide level, there is a self-perpetuating fear um, or climate of low-grade fear that always pushes middle managers or editors or people in minor positions of power, particularly, to censor themselves before it could even be flagged for a certain kind of censorship, right? And I really resented it, I think, at a, at a, at, at, as I was coming to understand how institutions operated. And I think for that reason, now I have been trying, I think because of that encounter, I do willfully work quite para-institutionally now because of this allergy towards institutions and, and thinking, oh, I will change the institution from within, you know, I will, I will infiltrate the institution. And then when the institution wears you down, you're like, why? Um, and, and I think I've had too many difficult experiences with that. And, and now I'm trying to experiment with a different way of working that is both inside and outside and much more outside, I think, various institutions. And I think, um, and I, I suppose you could look up this review. I wrote a review called uh, for of a show by Wild Rice called Press Gang um, by the playwright Dan Tan Hao, who also used to be a journalist working for the same newspaper I was at. Um, and I think something that we so easily say to absolve ourselves of our complicity in an institution is to be like, oh, the institution didn't allow me to do that. But everyone is saying that. And actually, if everyone stopped saying that, oh, the institution, you know, using the institution as a crutch or a shield almost to shield yourself from your, your, your complicity in this entire machine. And I think moving out of the institution and working in a much smaller outfit or, or writing independently has made me confront my own fear of being um, of, of being called out or being singled out as as um, as a critic, yeah. Um, I think it has made me more courageous for it. And but it it is very hard to shake this culture of collusion and of silence. And I think a lot of this stems from the fact that um, I, I suppose in the nineties in Singapore we came up with a word for it. I guess in 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 political discussions, the writer Catherine Lim was asking about. So what can we write about? What can't we write about? And the term that emerged was a golfing term called out of bounds markers or OB markers. And that in Singapore, there are certain OB markers that you can't touch, but no one says what these markers are. So you are kind of like gripping the dot to figure out, did I cross the line? Is this too far? But then it becomes a self-defeating exercise because if you keep trying to adhere to these invisible goalposts, you will never write what you need to write or, or articulate what needs to be said. Um, and, and I think very much we are just censoring ourselves before the censorship even arrives. You know, actually, I think there is much more room for things to be pushed, particularly in the arts, because it's a much smaller sector. I think there can be a lot of wiggle room for you to say what needs to be said. But I think there was a period of time, Singapore went through a, a really difficult political period throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where there were so many purges of, of more leftist artists and cultural workers um, and, and even religious workers who were 
who are aligned with like liberation theology and, and very left-wing, you can even see the work of, you know, one of our most famous playwrights, Kuo Pao Kun. In the 60s, he was writing work like The Struggle and like, hey, wake up, you know, about factory workers, um, about pushing back against authority. And then he was detained for four and a half years. And then after that, his work becomes really allegorical, right? Like everything is wrapped in like, oh, this is a symbol for this kind of work where you get um, really great plays still, you know, like the coffin is too big for the whole or no parking on odd days that critique this kind of bureaucracy in Singapore, very Kafkaesque bureaucracy. But I think um, one thing that has perpetuated or, or continued is that, oh, um, it, it feels very similar. I was, I've been reading a, a, a few texts on censorship and critique in late New Order Indonesia, so in the late 1990s. And there's always this sense that critique of the state has to be what you would say in Indonesian, halus, very refined, very, very, very subtle, very, very smooth, um, like refined criticism, you know, not, not, um, and the, uh, not kasar, which is the other term, just like rude or obvious or rough. All your critique must be refined, smooth, delicate. It can't ruffle too many feathers. You can hide it in certain meanings. And they would really crack down on what they saw as critique by theater practitioners in their work that was kasar, you know, like really, really um, overt. And, and it feels really similar, you know, that yes, you can critique the state, but it has to be very halus. <laughs> you know, you have to find ways of saying it that is acceptable or palatable. Um, and, and really finding ways of navigating these things. So, you know, even just this week, right, I'm part of an academic collective called Academia SG. Um, and uh, the senior editors just launched a survey report on academic freedom in Singapore. And the irony is that people were telling other people, oh, don't take part in this panel on academic freedom in Singapore, which kind of proves the point, right? <laughs> that, that they are afraid, even if the fear it's not, it doesn't come from the state. It might really be self-perpetuating, right? Like what might happen if you take part in something like this really proves the point. So I think it's, 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 these, it's this climate that I also struggle with myself that, that I am sometimes afraid, you know, like, oh my God, if I'm aligned with a collective such as this, will this mean that certain academic positions are closed off to me? Because that very much could be the case, right? In the future, there is definitely very quiet gray listing and blacklisting of people and you would never know why. Um, maybe mm. you did some kind of advocacy that the state, not even the state, you know, the state may not even care. It might be a certain department <laughs> is not pleased that you did a certain kind of advocacy and then that road is close to you. So I think the the, the machinery of censorship and, and a lack of criticism is much more insidious um, mm. in, in this country because it's a very clever system. Yeah. You know, the the it's no longer a blunt force. Uh, censorship you know it's it's not like oh this theme is like obviously this theme and therefore we will censor this play it's much more insidious we will yeah. cut a certain amount of this funding from yeah. you we will not allow you to pursue this course in your career so it's something that i am still navigating at the moment and, and yeah sorry Amita, you're gonna say something oh sorry it's just interesting because you were saying like when you were describing like this like you know walking in the dark trying not to like step on things that you're not supposed to step on you know and it, it's just a bit like um in this kind of environment if you put yourself in this kind of headspace if this becomes it, it's a bit like this is the censor or whoever the institution or the government or whoever becomes your imagined audience 
as well you know very good point yeah absolutely like yeah like they're always in your head and yeah and i think you 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 have to really make a decision not to let that be in your head because then you feel very paralyzed about what you can or can't do and i think paralysis is not very productive um and and i you know I, i definitely have been paralyzed at many points in 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 my life thinking about um things I've submitted, uh, let's say, when I was still with the, the National Broadsheet, that would be quietly certain things rewritten, you know, mm-hmm. overnight. Or I would have tweeted something more political and then be told, no, you can't tweet that. You know, please delete them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel very liberated now that I don't have to submit myself to these um, processes. But I think now that I've entered academia, it's a whole different set of, um, of machinery that is now wedded to rankings, um, mm. or, or how many journals do you publish in, you yeah. know, and, and different kinds of gatekeeping. Now I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that as I enter this field. So yeah, I think maybe that's a little bit of how I would describe yeah. culture of criticism here and how I think people are trying different ways and yeah. my way may not be the only way, right, to navigate and resist the voice of the state in your head. All right. I'm also curious, like, um, where do you get like um, those um, criticism pieces published? I mean, like, now in Thailand, we're mostly, you know, those pieces are go online. But I'm not sure, like, in your countries, like, you still have like published in a journal or like you printed stuff. I guess um, now most of the work I publish is online, um, mm-hmm. and that affords a lot more freedom, I think, uh, mm. what you can or can't write. I have to say that I've been teaching more and writing less at the moment, and I'm always very excited by what my students produce, um, what they write about, what they write against. Um, and that's really important to me, that it's not just my voice writing something, but there are many, many voices work- working collectively. Um, and I really love working in collectives um, or in networks because it gives you a strength in numbers almost, and you can't be singled out as, as uh, someone to be attacked, that there's a wider group that is with you and not, I think, protecting you and, and having your back. So I really appreciate, um, let's say, this, this uh, academic collective I've just joined, which is Academia SG, which are four tenured professors who, because they have that security, know that they can offer um, space and room and protection to younger scholars um, and a space to write. And because there are uh, six of us in total with the platform, you can come together in solidarity, right? And, and offer people a platform or some kind of legitimacy to write with you that may not be a mainstream publication or a mainstream way to get published. So I think these kinds of collectivities are really important because then you don't feel so isolated and, and an isolated person is very easy to alienate and, and take down, right? I think it's really great to work um, in concert with many people um, so that you have each other's backs. Yeah, and you can keep each other going. Yeah. What about in the Philippines, Katrina? Um, I, I think there are very few publications um, publishing reviews even. Um, and I don't know when that shifted. I left the mainstream in um, 2017. Um, I don't know when it was that 
um, suddenly reviews weren't welcome even in the publications that I was that I that I wrote in, um, and so I know that the younger writers have been encouraged towards writing feature articles and doing interviews or PR pieces instead of um, doing critical work. Um, there are a lot of, I think, younger uh, art study scholars who have put together different um, websites, you know. Um, but I feel like, uh, as with Gaslight, which is what I put up for reviews, it's very difficult actually to encourage people to, to continue writing about arts and culture because you also feel like there's um, you also feel like you're competing with, with the industry of content creation, which is um, which can also be very critical um, or can be doing uh, reviews of, say, theater productions, but they're all just doing it on Twitter or on Instagram. And I think there has been that kind of um, disillusionment um, for those who do want to do things long form and who still want to write essays. Um, so it's, I think it's been very uh, difficult. I think it's been more difficult for the younger writers or the ones who want to be critics or to do reviews to be encouraged to continue doing it because you don't really have publications um, that will publish or will pay you well enough. Um, so I feel like in the Philippines in particular, the, the state of criticism is really and has to be bound to how much you earn from it. And I don't think that there's uh, massive uh, earnings that, can be, that, can, that you can get from it at this point. Um, but I do think that, that um, there is a lot of interest in being critical. And... And in consuming texts, you know, um, like Corey, I've spent a lot of time teaching and and you realize that kids are actually very critical. They, they might not be writing about it. Uh, they might not be um, doing essays, but there is a very keen sense of what is wrong with what it is they're seeing. Um, there's a very keen sense of why it's important to contextualize uh, cultural productions in the state of the nation. So there's a very clear sense of what is valuable and what isn't for a time like this one. And I totally appreciate that. I think there's, um, I think that this might be an interim period where we're just trying to figure out really um, how to go back to writing, how to recommit to the task of sitting down and fleshing our thoughts out um, and trying to have conversations again. Um, there isn't really, I, I, we don't have a problem, I think, with um, self-censorship. Uh, I think in terms of um, being able to speak as loudly as we want, um, there is that kind of freedom. Uh, I do think, though, that when Corey mentioned, you know, uh, at the time when you know uh, being red tagged or being connected to the left would be enough to, you know, get arrested or jailed or be silenced, I do think we're there right now, and and it is enough reason to um, be afraid. But I've taken it as an opportunity to reimagine how we can say the same things in a different way um, to create your own wiggle room in that context. Um, I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me you have wiggle room here. I'm going to create that wiggle room because I feel like there is always space for circumvention um, with creativity. 
And to some extent in the Philippines, I think that um, there's enough of us who are difficult to peg down to just being leftists. Um, and so it might be, you know, the way we speak, it might be the language we use, it might be the vocabulary that we refuse to use in our writings. But I feel that there's enough of us who, if we were more conscious of it, um, would actually feel more free and would have a lot of space for uh, criticism, not just of uh, cultural productions, but also of just the state of the nation in general. Um, so I think that also brings me back to language, you know, that the kind of English I use is an English that is for a particular um, social class in the Philippines. Um, I don't think that I am perceived as a state enemy uh, in any way. And I think that's primarily because of the language that I use. Um, if I were writing in Tagalog, I would fall back on a vocabulary that would be so easy to peg as leftist. And then I would feel I would be endangering myself. But I think that I've maintained this kind of relationship with an audience that is thinking, speaking, criticizing in English is really also my security blanket. Yeah, it's interesting that Katina just mentioned that it's already hard for like writers and critics to write, to continue writing. And I think especially during this you know, pandemic, because like there's like more stuff, more online performances and like hybrid stuff, virtual conference or virtual like seminars. Do you think like this, um, this going online has affect your work or do you have like your perspective has changed since the pandemic comes? Yeah, I... Yeah, I think maybe to tie it into what Katrina just shared also, like creating your own space for critical discourse. Um, we've mentioned Arts Equator a few times, but I just really want to say Arts Equator has been incredible, not just because I work with them, but that they have carved out this regional space for us to be able to offer up very situated, located pieces of critique or reflections that tie us to the struggles of the region more broadly as a whole to see parallels and divergences and to see how we can learn from each other. Maybe we'll revisit that later on. But yeah, I think um, writing with Antiquita, they've been very responsive to um, the pandemic and how to make use of this virtual space that we're now inhabiting literally right now over Zoom um, and, and ways in which we can, even though we are in our own homes or, or atomized in that way, how can we bring people together, even if mediated, um, and have these regional discussions. So I think one thing I really appreciated, um, even when we're confined to our homes, is uh, webinars or discussions or forums where I can be in the room with someone from Thailand, someone from the Philippines, someone from Indonesia, and that we can all be having a collective conversation about a piece of work that we managed to watch, whether in person or recorded very nicely <laughs> for online consumption, and that we can have a shared discussion about this work and the different ways in which we intersect or relate to this work. Um, and, and I think that has really um, been quite profound for me, even though I feel very restless and confined at the same time. Um, and I think the, the ways in which each of our governments have been managing the pandemic has a huge bearing on cultural labor and cultural work in each of our countries and whether they're doing well 
or badly, um, whether they can be bailed out with a great injection of funds, or whether they've just been hung out to dry, which I know has been the case in many, many Southeast Asian countries. Um, and I think a lot of how we've been responding to the pandemic in the past year, it's a bit like the state's social choreography of us, you know, whether like, uh, I think a lot of artists in Singapore, for example, have talked about our safe management measures or SMMs as kind of performance scores that we have to navigate because sometimes they, during like difficult periods, they change day by day and then you never know if a performance is going to happen or not. Um, and so artists have really had to shift with the demands of, of the state and also the pandemic. And, and I think the critical work has to reflect these struggles also, but that doesn't exempt work from being reflected on or written about, I think. Um, it's also, I think, the way in which the critic and the artist are both collectively making sense about how art is navigating uh, the pandemic. And sometimes we don't have the vocabulary for it yet, but I feel like we've been figuring this out together, you know, and in, in, I think Ansegrita has done a fantastic job in, in arranging all these um, discussions in which we can collectively build vocabulary, like, oh yes, this is happening where I am at as well. Um, we have a lot of artists doing solo work, for example. Um, sorry, my cat is here. <laughs> I don't even hear her meowing. Don't worry, yes, that's fine, cute. I'm really sorry, I'm just gonna move her <laughs> off the table. <laughs> um, Oh, what was I saying? Um, um, yeah, like, yeah, like, like really figuring out through, through these yeah. events, whether it's the Asian Arts Media Roundtable, um, or I think there was a series of events called Burning Questions that Artsy Greta did last year as well, that we were really just like, we didn't even, it was really, we didn't even know what to really say about the pandemic yet because it had just started. And I think we we're all reacting to it immediately. And it's just been interesting to, over the course of the past year, see how that writing and those reflections have evolved. Um, and I think now it's both easier and also incredibly difficult. It feels even worse actually in Southeast Asia right now, where you see a, a vaccine inequity coming into play and certain countries are opening up and, and quote unquote reverting to a kind of normalcy. But I, 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 oh, I don't really like that word either, because I feel like you know we had a chance, I think, during the pandemic to really revolutionize how we practice our artwork right to reflect think about what are best practices what are better ways in which we can um, be more inclusive be more diverse um, uh, account for certain things be accountable and now with Southeast Asia in a huge state of despair with even more prolonged lockdowns it's now really trying to see if COVID-19 becomes endemic how do we maintain the livelihoods of the cultural sector yeah, so I think we really pivoted to like, this is a temporary thing. How do we just last it out to like, okay, how do we maintain and sustain this ecosystem and, and, and the struggles and difficulties that come with it? Yeah. Katrina? Um, I think that in terms of just the practice of art criticism, I haven't written anything um, that's uh, related to any of the shows I've seen online the past year. Uh, and that's really many things. Uh, I'm exhausted from doing work that is not writing criticism. Um, 
I there's also the fact that I feel like so many of these performances and productions are trying their hardest to engage an online audience and I I question whether um, the criticism that I'd like to do is welcome because I do want um, I do want to be able to pay tribute to the kind of work they wanted to do um, and that many are forging on. And I feel like when I don't enjoy a work because I'm watching it on screen, is it because the work is really bad or is it just because I'm watching it on screen? And I can't really reconcile that yet. So I haven't really written about anything yet. Um, I have tons of notes on the things that I have seen. Um, I don't know um, how that will be formed into an essay, if at all, later on. Um, if there's anything, though, that I realized about um, my critical work in particular is that it became apparently more valuable in the pandemic and, and in a way that isn't really about talking um, about specific work uh, in the way that we write those reviews, but in the way that um, my work really did evolve from just writing reviews to actually talking about uh, the systemic dysfunctions of the cultural sector long before the pandemic happened. So I think when the pandemic hit and people were looking for people to talk to about what was happening in the Philippines in relation to the cultural sector, um, uh, organizations like Arts Equator fell back on me, and which I totally welcome because it also, um, those conversations with AE last year actually forced me to sit down and, and, and assess what was happening um, because also we were so embroiled in, you know, relief operations, et cetera, et cetera, that there really wasn't a lot of time to spend just sitting and trying to figure out what the hell is happening. Um, and so I think those conversations were very important um, in the way that also Arts Equator fashions questions that have to do with not just, you know, um, being creative or producing um, cultural works, but but questions that have to do with, you know, uh, our survival, uh, our, you know, mental health, um, just the ways in which, the, the multifarious ways in which the pandemic had affected the cultural sector and um, critics as well. Um, and I think the past year, and this is something that I've told a couple of friends as well, I think it, it surprisingly um, also strengthened my belief that criticism is important because it when done well and consistently regardless of whatever fears we might live with or regardless of how much we earn from it at any given point um, at critical moments in history um, the function of the critic is really to talk about the crisis and um, and in this particular juncture that crisis is so um, massive that there was no way of actually um, fleshing it out uh, as it was happening um, other than to actually fall back on the work of critics um, even before the pandemic. And I've been very lucky that I already had um, Kathy in my network and AE in my network so that it was really 
that just also started a series of invitations for talks um, that had to do with, you know, tracing our precarity in a time like this, um, talking about systemic dysfunctions that have been surfaced by the crisis such as a pandemic and the realization that regionally we are all in the same boat, that in fact, um, when we think about um, how bad things are in the Philippines, it's as bad everywhere, anywhere in Southeast Asia, if not in Asia. And one has to be grateful for organizations that want to have those conversations. And, you know, the Mekong Cultural Hub, um, Forum Asia, uh, Arts Equator, of course, um, have been so important in maintaining these conversations. And I think to some extent, and I, I'm pretty sure I don't just speak for myself, getting invited to, to have these conversations and do presentations for these things also have kept me very sane the past year. You know, it, it, it always felt like a, a marker for, you know, I have this at the end of this week or I have this within the month and I have to prepare for it. And so it brings me back to the fact that I am a critic and I am a writer and I do have um, the kind of experience and headspace and um, backbone to talk about these issues. And it doesn't matter whether in the Philippines they care about these conversations because they don't. Um, it does matter to me that regionally there is an interest in having this conversation because um, one has to be hopeful that we can, you know, move from this pandemic uh, towards changing bits and pieces of the system at the very least. And we can only do so when we start to talk to each other about it and start to have a language for it that is ours. And I said this in one of the forums, I think that, you know, uh, our crisis really is that if we don't get our shit together and start telling our stories about the pandemic and how it has affected the cultural sector and, you know, just our nations in general, then someone else will start telling that story for us. And I feel like the role of the critic is really to start telling those stories already. And the pandemic has totally changed my perspective on what work I should be doing from here on in. It's obviously not reviews, um, which is a sad thing too. Um, but I feel like there's a, there's a more urgent story to tell and I do want to be able to tell that. I think it's interesting that you both kind of pull back. I think we all did, you know, a lot of us did in a way from reviewing work by work because I, I felt at the same time at the beginning, I was like, you know, let, them, let the artist experiment, let them do that. This is the, you know, this is like their work is, their works are public, but, you know, let them do that. We don't need to enter the space yet. And it's interesting because, um, Corey, I want to ask you because you said in June 2020, last year in Corona Logs um, with Nabila, Nabila, the collective, like your conversation in writing um, on Arts, in, in Arts Equator, you said that you feel, you feel like this is not the time to write. Like you're just hating the fact that you were writing. Do you still feel that way now? Or do you feel like you're co kind of combining critiquing and writing into the same action? Do you still feel like it's act? Because you were asking like, is writing action? And then suddenly you used to be clear about that. But then in June, 2020, during that time, you were still like, I'm not sure anymore. You were not sure anymore. How do you feel about that now? Because both mm -hmm. of you have been so politically yeah. active. You've been like, 
you know, online, you were, um, Katrina, you were talking, you've been very active. Didn't you form like an an NGO sort of that distributed food in the Philippines at the beginning? I'm not sure. And it's still active now, I guess, distributing foods in, in the Philippines, in Manila. And Corey, you've been very active online and elsewhere as well politically rather than artistically, but we're both still very active with Art Equator, for example, having conversation rather than rather than speaking rather than writing. So how do you feel about writing versus ac- action? I do really feel that all of these elements are part of the same critical practice that now we have, a, as, as a critic, your role is not only to write in response to certain pieces of work, but it encompasses all these acts that you've just listed, right? I think Bagasa is also a part of Katrina's critical practice as someone situated um, within the Philippines. And, and I think it was, a, 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 I, I'm gonna see if I can find this quote that I, I, I think I saw Katrina write about how um, criticism is always in, I'm just going to look for that quote. I'm sorry, you can cut this part out. <laughs> oh yes, she said, feeding the people, assisting the most vulnerable is always, always an act of criticism. None of us would need to do any of the relief and survival work, soup kitchens and survival packs, pantries and mobile testing centers if the government was doing its work. And I really think that part of the act of criticism is thinking for me myself as criticism as an act of care and care is a word that's like thrown about very loosely these days self-care state care but I think for me I, I think of care very closely to what the political scientist Joan Tronto how she articulates care and she she talks about how care is a reaching out to something other than the self that is not self-referring or self-absorbing and that criticism or a caring sort of critique to me has to lead to a kind of action. You can't say, oh, I care about something. And then you're like, mm, but let me not do anything about it. Then you don't really care about that thing, right? <laughs> um, so I think if, I think criticism is really an act of care for those who have fallen through the cracks through so quote unquote state care. Um, and and it relinquishes the role, the idea or the stereotype of the critic as someone passive who just responds and reacts to certain things. Because I think we, we really have to shed that. I think, you know, being in a position to observe uh, the ineptitude or the lack of care um, or the callousness um, that this pandemic has wrought upon us demands that you respond to it, right, in, in any way that you can. And, and I really resonate with not being able to, to write or think slowly at a certain point in time, because maybe during those periods, the urgency of responding to needs is more important in that period of time. But I think there will also be periods of time where then you can sit back and reflect and, ah, okay, this is why I was behaving in a certain way or responding in a certain way. And that's where the slowness of critique is at, is at its best, right? Where you can stretch out the temporal duration and really reflect on why people were reacting in a certain way. But I think you have to be very sensitive and attuned to what the circumstances demand of you. So I think um, even though maybe I wasn't writing as much, I still see a lot of the interventions that both Katrina and I did as very much part of the practice of the critic. So I think on our end, I I also did certain food distribution under certain channels. Um, 
there were a group of book reviewers on Instagram in Singapore who came together to do a fundraiser for mutual aid. It is still ongoing during the period of time when we started out. I think we raised 20,000 Singapore dollars in a month um, to be able to distribute like, immediately to people on the ground who needed it most, who had lost jobs because of the pandemic, um, who were in between um, the safety nets that the state had tried to quickly scaffold but didn't qualify because of certain things, um, or maybe they were foreign spouses based in Singapore that had um, different differentiated access to care. So I think there was an immediate intervention that happened. Last year it was called Where's Book Fair. Um, it's still ongoing at the moment. Um, and I think a lot of these urgencies took up a lot more of, of my attention and time. And of course, this year, um, there was a military, military coup in Myanmar starting in the 1st of February. Um, my husband is Burmese, and so I have an incredibly close relationship with Myanmar. It's a country that I have been to, lived in, and frequent very much across the past 10 years um, since it was opening up. And maybe I won't talk too much about that, but there are many ways in which I've had to set other projects aside to pour my attention into supporting the people who need it most. And there are some things, unfortunately, that I can't speak too much at length about given the sensitivity of the situation um, that um, yeah, in, in, involve uh, responding to certain needs. Um, but a lot of that work is ongoing and has become a priority to me. Um, and, and I really resonate with what Katrina talked about, about this regional um, awareness that we have to build um, because to me, I think care is also interdependency, a recognition of our interdependency. We are all connected to and dependent upon each other. You know, one thing, if something happens in the Philippines, it has an impact here, um, but people choose not to recognize it or they just don't see it or they feel too far removed um, from the conversation to recognize it. But it is a profound impact. Um, and you see that, right, uh, the effect of the coup in Myanmar and also the protests in Thailand. There's so many reverberations and connections between the sites where we are located. And we really need to be able to come together to discuss the approaches and strategies we are taking to see what resonates, what has worked in certain sites. I think about how so many of the Hong Kong protesters created resource packs for, for Myanmar protesters, how to stay safe how to, to take care of yourselves after being tear gassed, you know, um, and ways of building critical commons in this way, right? It's a shared resource or commons. And, and I, I, I really, I think part of my work right now is to think about how can we build or, or further develop these regional solidarities and take each other as reference points. And, and, and from those reference points, be able to build a map or, or at least a sense of the various directions in which we can take. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes, I agree with all that she said. <laughs> Sorry, very emotional. I know. But yeah, but you it's, know, it's so important. I, I cannot stress that enough. And, and so I'm just going to go on one more minor. Rant. Okay. okay. <laughs> I think a lot of people in Singapore is like, huh, why can't we just be comfortable? And I'm like, how can you be comfortable when your comfort depends upon the status quo being maintained as is, you know, when the status quo 
deliberately excludes um, um, certain people from access to the care that they need, whether this is migrant workers being literally trapped in their dorms in Singapore, despite being completely vaccinated, um, and, and a lack of attention right, to, to the things in this country because they, you don't think they affect you and not desiring to move out of the comfort that you have, um, even though it definitely impinges on, on the comfort and, and the safety and the security of others. So when people say, why can't I just be comfortable? Isn't it enough that I just want to make a life for myself and live comfortably? And I think that is a willful ignorance to, to what else is going on in our country that you just choose not to see. Um, and that to me is not care, you know, I, I, I think a lot of things that get lumped under self-care, like, oh, let me just uh, tune out everything and pay attention to myself. People don't have the luxury of doing that, you know, um, um, when every day, I think particularly in the first few months of the coup, I would be in tears because I, th I thought my friends and family would just die, you know, you, you are living in a constant state of immense psychic stress and it's not something that will go away if you stop looking at the news you know it, it, it's really a whole different way of configuring your life so that you can sustain these networks yeah okay sorry Katrina um I, I totally agree with everything she said I am I mean I think that um when I decided to uh call for goods in in March 17 which was like the first couple of days of the lockdown of last year. Um, it came with a lot of fear, actually. I didn't want to put my name on it. I didn't want to um, come out with it publicly. I wanted to do it very privately, um, just with my contacts on my Telegram. Um, and it was fear that was very clearly bound to uh, the kind of attacks um, people would get from uh, government propagandists. And I felt like I didn't need that kind of violence at a time that was already so stressful. Um, but it was one of my friends who was is part of the core team of Pagasa who said, you know, people will trust this initiative because it's you, because your name is on it. And, and you need to you know, find it in yourself and acknowledge the fact that a nameless initiative will do much worse than one that has a name and your name is valuable to this project. And, and that took a lot of convincing, I think. Um, it took a while before I agreed to put up a, an Instagram account. Uh, it took even longer for me to put my face on it. I think people knew it was me. Um, many would message me and say, is this you? Like many artists who wanted to, you know, raise funds by selling their artworks would ask me, is this yours before we actually do something? And that's also when I realized, okay, it, it does matter that they have a name on it. And certainly that name is because it's a name of a critic. And, and I think that if there's anything that might be important to flesh out, it's also the kind of credibility we have built um, for ourselves uh, within this context that allowed us to shift very swiftly um, from doing um, the critical work we do for the arts and culture sector to actually doing the critical work for a nation that was urgent and necessary. Um, 
that we have continued to do it and that the, the issues have just expanded is really a measure of how bad things are. Um, I certainly didn't think that we would have to continue to do relief operations and be still thinking about feeding people 18 months since our first lockdown. Um, I certainly thought, um, because I'm an optimist, I, I certainly thought that by the time we got vaccines, we would have more freedom to actually start talking about, you know, the 2022 elections. Um, but we have not had that kind of um, reprieve um, from not just the pandemic, but I think the really bad, almost criminal government negligence uh, in this country. Um, do I... Do I miss? Do I miss the fact that? Uh, do I miss that life where I was just, you know, writing about um, productions? Um, I do. I think I do. I feel like I've been trying very hard to write um, because I do think that's a particular. It's a particular hand exercise and brain exercise that I miss terribly. Um, but I also know that that. I can only do so much given just the magnitude of um, this crisis. And it kind of uh, puts things in perspective because also your body can only take so much. And so I've also not wanted to get sick. And so I've spent a lot of time, you know, taking breaks and realizing that writing isn't really a break anymore because you feel like if I'm writing a review now, what better way can I, on what can I use my time better, right? Um, and there's always something else. Um, I, I, I did say this, I think I've said this often enough, but, you know, when people ask me, what have you written? You know, because I have friends who actually have written books in the pandemic. And, and when they ask, what have I written? And I say, nothing. I have written nothing. And then I realized that, in fact, I've written all of Pag-asa. Um, that is all my words and it's all of my writing it's not um it's not an essay it's not uh the kind of it's not a body of work that you can just put in a book but it is writing and it is as tiring and as exhausting if not even more so because it's urgent because it's necessary because you actually see um the outcomes from that kind of writing um and I think that it also captures what Corey was saying earlier about, you know, trying to um, trying to make people realize that we should be uncomfortable. We should be um, we shouldn't be thinking about being comfortable at this point. Criticism is a conversation that's uncomfortable, even more so when you're talking about. Um, issues that mean life and death for a majority who are neglected. And I feel like um, the work that I've put into Pag-asa has really been about having those very uncomfortable, difficult conversations with people who might otherwise not care and or who, you know, are privileged enough to not care because they can feed their families, they can continue to have money in their bank accounts, you know, they're not as at risk or in danger as everybody else. And we have seen them have these conversations with us. And it's something that we welcome. It's something that also tells us we're doing something right and that we cannot stop. It isn't even that we shouldn't. It's that we cannot. 
um, to my mind, there is nothing more urgent than having these conversations towards actually working on making sure that we can change things in some way or other. Um, and it's not just about, you know, feeding the people in this urgent, you know, they're hungry right now, let's bring them food. It's really also about talking um, about why they're even hungry, about why we're even under governments that don't care, you know. Uh, and it's, it's a conversation that's difficult, but I feel like more and more people are ready to have um, and that's a good thing. And it's a, it's difficult for the ones who want to start the conversation. Um, but there is a certain level of, um, it, it's not contentment. Um, I think there's a certain level of um, joy in realizing that so many others are ready to be you. You know, to be you in their household or to be you among their friends and to actually start those conversations as well with people who might not otherwise care. Um, is this the work of the critic? Of course it is because um, I'm a critic and this is the work I do. And so it still goes back to, you know, fashioning these labels and these terms for ourselves. And, and I always go back to the fact that, you know, the, the, the critic is really about uh, the critic is really there to talk about the crisis, whether it's a crisis in a text, a crisis in a production, or a crisis in, you know, the state of the nation. And that we have been thrust into that because of this pandemic, I feel is a good thing. Um, that there are institutions like Arts Equator, Mekong Cultural Hub, um, Forum Asia, that welcome people like us. is a fantastic thing. That... that that Bangkok offstage is willing to have this conversation with us is really a fantastic thing because it would otherwise, you know, at any other instance, it wouldn't be interesting to anyone, mm. right? Yeah. And so I also feel like we're all expanding on our sense of what is it that critics can talk about, really? And yeah. it's an not, arts critic, right? Like right? To make it more relevant. It's, right? And it's huge. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the expanse is huge. And I feel like these expansions are so important, not just for where we are, but for the region as well. So how do you think like we can expand that, like cultivate more connection between us critics in Southeast Asia? Because well, apart from AAMR, the roundtable that we've met for the first time there, and I think like, most critics in the region like meet often in like the festivals. So, but apart from that, I rarely see the, the chance, you know, that we've been connected together. So do you have any idea or what should, can be done better? I, I think, um, I think the Asian Arts Media Roundtable was incredible as a way of bringing us together. I'm still feeling the impact um, particularly meeting so many women um, who shared the same um, attitudes or, or goals or hopes that I did. Um, and in many ways, I think we have main maintained that relationship. That's why we're all here in this room. Um, I think um, I look at the work that, um, like what Katrina mentioned, that the Mekong Cultural Hub is doing, um, the work that BIPEM is doing, and that's uh, I guess a plug that it's coming up in September, um, that really brings together regional um, artists and, and, and as a site for discourse. I think on my end, in, in terms of thinking about how to continue to sustain these relationships between critics, um, I'm currently in the process of um, 
uh, running, uh, coordinating a six-month uh, transnational residency for 12 artists and critics, mostly from archipelagic Southeast Asia. So from Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, actually we invited Katrina to hop in on one of our sessions. And I think for, for me and for the 11 of the, the remaining 11, it was also a way for us to, to build deeper relationships to see whether we had any um, shared points of consensus, but also divergent views and they're dramatically different perspectives um, within our group. And to also build a site for shared knowledge, I think. Um, and it really makes me think, you know, who do we take as our reference points? You know, how can we build up a repository of knowledge, just not just among critics, but in general, right? Who who do we take as references and as aspirations, as fellow problem solvers in our region? And who do we invite into our classrooms, right? Who do we build our, our curriculums on? And I think I very much want to make it a goal to, to take this region as a starting point. And, and so I, Katrina has been a guest at a couple of my uh, classes. And, and I hope these exchanges will continue. So uh, in the Critical Ecologies Working Group that um, I started in March earlier this year, we are now coming to the end of our first six months, but already people are like, how can we continue? Can we continue with a reading group, watch parties, um, having more discussions? Can we invite more people in? How can we build um, uh, a robust, but also, um, you know, a, a, a space that you feel safe discussing difficult things um, and supported discussing difficult things? Um, how do we sustain that kind of environment? So I suppose that was one of the ways in which I hoped we could continue these regional solidarities. But I think that throughout this pandemic, that's something that I observe has been happening. I think Atsugrita has definitely made it a point to continue um, these conversations among artists and critics in the region. Um, and I think on our own part, it's also about being very deliberate in choosing the kind of collectives or collaborations we want to be involved in. Um, and, and yeah, how we can learn from each other. So I think this is already a start. I hope it will continue. Um, yeah. Katrina? Um, I think I've, I've talked about this um often enough um, that that there is a need for uh, there is a need for someone or an institution to actually put together just you know uh, uh, what's happening in Southeast Asia kind of thing um, because we are so dependent on foreign on on well, Western media, to actually figure out what's happening in our countries. There's no one place we can go to to understand um, better what is going on in any of our countries. Half the time, what we get is propaganda from our governments because that's what they're spending on. Um, and, and I feel like the only way people will understand better how interconnected we are is if we actually fashion information for an audience that already shows them that interconnectedness. And, um, and this is something that I've talked to uh, with a lot of people. Uh, when I, I, I was a facilitator for a workshop, for an off-radar workshop um, in December of last year, and I had to meet with you know, um, artists and activists from 
um, across Southeast Asia. And it was, it was the first time I thought about it because I realized I knew so little about all these other countries and what was happening. And I remember it resonating so much with me that I didn't know what was happening in India. I didn't know what was happening in Myanmar. Uh, and it took these people to talk to me about the climates of fear that they lived under um, for me to realize how bad things were. And the same for Hong Kong, you know. Um, and I consider myself someone who actually seeks out this information, right? And, and yet it wasn't really something that, that I had as top knowledge. Um, and so I, I still feel that that is an important project that needs to be put together um, because we can not depend on just Western and just mainstream media to actually tell us what is happening at any given point. And we can't depend on hashtags on Twitter or social media because the next big issue will just take over your, your algorithm, right? Um, and so I, I feel that that's still one major project that can be put together, not just by critics, but, you know, by scholars and by, you know, just practically anyone who is interested in establishing an um, information portal for the region, just so we understand each other better, um, just so we're vetting the information that we get. Because I realized, for example, for Myanmar, that I have depended solely on what Corey puts out or what um, the, other, uh, the other Burmese artists put out that I actually know personally. Because otherwise, I would be getting nothing but foreign media. And, and that just doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't capture what is actually happening anywhere. And the same for the Thailand protests, the same for the India protests. Um, and I'm pretty sure the same for whatever it is you guys get about the Philippines. So I do feel that that critical perspective that that we have about the information that is important is critical to putting together um, to putting together a project like this one that champions information from our countries based on what we know is important um, for a Southeast Asian or an Asian readership. Um, in terms of uh, regional solidarities um, for arts and culture in general, I really think there's so much to be learned from um, there's so much to be learned from each other in terms of um, how government has treated the arts and culture sector um, pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. And I think that it takes critics to sit down and talk about policies, programs, what worked, what didn't work, um, what is really just trying to pretend that they're doing something for us, um, what isn't. Because I feel like the artists are just trying really to make ends meet. They're just trying to survive. And if we are so lucky as critics to actually, you know, have the headspace and have the savings and still have the earnings to actually continue having a conversation about um, what the arts and culture sectors need, then that would be a fantastic um, thing to start talking about. So bigger scale, I think, um, again, the expanded version of what a critic's job usually is. But I think those expanded versions are really, um, to some extent, what we work towards. And I feel confident that we do have the capacity to start these projects as well. Last question. Can I have from each of you three questions that you think critics, writers, the socially and politically engaged should bring to the regional conversation? That questions that you think have not been addressed. 
I can feel the questions within me. So they're just not coming oh out God. of my mouth. You know, I, I, I think... Right. Maybe a are, topic. Maybe yeah, I... there are definitely shared urgencies that we have. But I really feel like this is this is what we've been talking about this entire conversation. Like these to just continue these. Yeah, like, <laughs> like I, I think um, what are better ways in which we can learn from each other mm. to address um, the... The sometimes very brutal struggles that we face in each of our localities, right? Mm. How can we come together and learn from each other um, to think about various modes of resistance or celebration um, or shared joy? Um, and how do we continue to sustain each other through the most difficult of times um, is one question, I guess, that I have. And how, how can we, when we talk about urgencies, not be reactive just in the moment when it feels most urgent or it's taking over all of our headlines, but build a consistent practice of mutual support even after the headlines have ended. Right, because I think a lot of people think, oh, let's just care about this thing now. And then, yay, we finish caring the end let's <laughs> it, we've sorted it because we've cared about it this once but i think caring is a durational process it is an act of maintenance and sustaining and you can't just like oh yes this one thing is done i'm sorry i'm like wiping my hands so i can hear the sound um and we don't have to care about it anymore because then the situation will have shifted and then we'll have new demands and new struggles that we have to then shift um, our approaches and 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 um, support networks towards. So how can we sustain each other beyond the short lifespan of, of certain headlines, right? Um, and and make sure that this mutual caring and interdependence is a sustained one, um, and that we all feel supported while doing it, and not that one person is just carrying the labor of. Supporting, for many, supporting many different things. So I really love that Katrina also talked about taking breaks to be able to sustain the work that Bagasa is doing, um, to refill and replenish yourself. And this is why solidarity is so important, right? That you can refill and replenish yourself with others. And then feel like, yes, I can, I have the strength and the will to, to continue, even if it feels impossible. And there are days where it just feels like, why don't we all just give up? <laughs> but, you know, it is having, having these shared support systems that really allow you to, to go on and I think I would I would also question um, the narrative that um, critiquing something is disuniting or sowing discord I think that's so common whenever like someone raises a question about something that the government or an institution is doing and then people are like oh don't talk about that now we can talk about that later when this problem is solved like you know don't don't sow discord don't don't disunite the populace I'm like but and, and why do we why do we it, it, I should, then I'll ask the question like, um, why is bringing this up 
what is bringing up make, make you so insecure about what it is that you are um, trying to offer? I think particularly um, when it comes to, uh, just as an example, right? Um, Myanmar Shadow Government is the National Unity Government or NUG. And there have been activists and advocates and critics saying, hey, we don't quite agree with some of the stuff you've laid out in your charter. You know, why does it list um, certain ethnic groups in this way? It doesn't use this specific term. Where, where did the Rohingya get factored in or are included right, in, in, in national policy making? And then there's a whole group of people like, oh, don't, don't critique them now. We have a revolution to win. But if you don't build these policies um, and these goals and these inclusivities into the process of your revolution, then you'll find that they have been written out when, you, when the revolution is done. So I think it's really paying attention about to, to who is asking these questions and why do they want certain critique to be excluded. So I would want people to pay attention to who is included in the conversation, who is excluded from conversations, I guess. Sorry, those are so too many questions. <laughs> but they're really It's not that hard. For, it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, there are really things that are for, foremost in my mind when it comes mm -hmm. to, to thinking about the tumultuous politics in our region right now. Um, where is our where where are institutions or governments saying our, our attention should be directed at? And where else should we be looking at um, that's not part of the conversation? Katrina? Um, <laughs> I have no questions. <laughs> um, I think that one of the things that has interested me, and I have this conversation with uh, Fu, I think, uh, someone that we met in the, in the first um, AAMR, um, the young girl from Myanmar, um, the critic, and she, yes, and then, and I think one of the frustrations that she's had, which I, I have in common with her, um, is really the question of how far online protests go. And I feel like it's such an important question to throw in any of our countries, but especially to the region um, that has found solidarity through online protests. And I do feel like it, it also unpacks so many other questions, like um, how do you deal with the tyranny of the algorithm, which is close to impossible to crack? Um, how do you... Um, translate online protest to real-life protest, or at least to real-life outcomes. How does what we do on Twitter in 280 characters actually change the way things are? Because when you think about how massive the online um, protests for uh, Myanmar was in the beginning and how it just kind of petered out as more issues came out, you know, how there was such a massive um, online protest um, for Hong Kong's democracy and how that also just kind of petered out. You also realize that if the measure of online protest is actual um, is actual change on the ground is actually, you know, a military government or China uh, actually uh, listening to those protests. If that is the measure of success, then none of these protests have been successful. And the same for the Philippines, you know, we've been noisy the past five years versus this government, but it's still there. And so I feel like it's an important question already to ask. It's a question that isn't welcome 
in this country. Um, I think there's a, there's a certain value given to it in terms of the pandemic, the idea that since people can't go out and this is the only way they can do protest, then this is good enough. And I do appreciate that. But I feel that for artists and writers and critics and creatives, um, there has to be some other way to do protest that will allow for us to take up space in some form or other. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is really... Um, the work of this artist, Leslie de Chavez, who, who did a, an exhibition about two months ago, and he entitled it A Lonely Picket in the Balcony. And the title was inspired by the caption to a photograph from Marsha Law. It was a photograph of artist David Medalia. Um, he was in the balcony of the Cultural Center of the Philippines, holding like a like a hand-drawn placard against um, the dictatorship. And he was, it was him and then two other artists. So, and then the, the journalist had labeled it a lonely picket in the balcony. And then to my mind, um, those lonely pickets in the balcony um, is what we need. It's, it's an indication that there is much that can still be done in terms of protest, even in the time of pandemic. And I feel that Myanmar has shown us that as well. You know, when they were dancing on their roofs, making noise, um, that was an important, crucial moment that I feel the arts and culture sectors across the region could learn from. But I think we, we also don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about, you know, the kind of bravery and fear that are interwoven into that act of going out with your pan and your, and your ladle and making noise, you know, in the dead of the night. And I think that these conversations are important to have. But before we have those conversations, we have to ask the question that no one wants to answer. Um, so I think that's that to me is a very important question at this point um, because the, the tyrants we are under um, have well thought out strategies for containing us and for silencing us and for creating these climates of fear. Um, and I feel like we aren't really looking yet at the possibilities for um, actually resisting and rebelling against them, um, which is why they're winning, um, which is the other question I would, I would always throw into a conversation about uh, the region and about where we are at this point. You know, um, why have we let our tyrants win? Because we have. And I think that um, at least in the Philippines, this is a question that's not welcome. You know, they, they don't, People don't really like it when I say, you know, Duterte has won. He's still in power. He's going to finish his presidency. Um, this is a country that has kicked out presidents for so much less. Um, but this is a man who has been able to stay in power. And to me, um, it requires us to admit our own limitations, maybe our own complicity um, in having allowed him to stay, maybe our lack of um, our limited creativities in terms of mounting protest actions um, and, you know, just our, maybe our capacity for, our inexcusable capacity to be forgiving of our leaders. Um, I think there are a lot of questions we should be asking ourselves in terms of why we have 
gotten to this point in our countries where a pandemic did not even require our governments to rise to the occasion or to pretend that they care about us, where there is just utter shamelessness no, from, from our government. So I feel that that also falls a lot on our generation. Um, it's not just on artists, critics, writers, creatives, but really on, on this generation that, that grew up on you know, so-called democracies. And what that kind of did to us in terms of um, what we accept from our leaders, what we accept from our institutions, and what else we can still do so that, you know, the younger generation will have it better. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, we'll go into now our, um, our last section of the show, the lightning round. So a bit more fun to lighten things up a bit. <laughs> have you guys ever played this game? No? Okay, so we're going to give you two options, and each of you will have to answer. You are not allowed to say, I don't want, I don't want neither. You have to pick one. You can't say pass. You can't say neither. Or both. Or both, right. As you can see with Kari's and my reaction, we're really bad at these things. <laughs> and, you don't need, uh, and, it's, and it's lightning round, so you, um, it's quick. You don't need to give us the reason. And, uh, and yeah, we, we'll go Corey and then Katrina. For each for each question, I we hope that you know all of these things. So, but most of the, most of the times you'll be fine. So, in which or whose world would you choose to live in if you had a choice between 1920s or 1960s, Corey? 1960s. 1960s. Mughal Empire or Ottoman Empire? Mughal. <laughs> Ottoman. Of love and other demons or midnight's children. <laughs> this is hard. I want to say neither. <laughs> yes. Midnight's children, midnight's children. Of love and other demons. The Handmaid's Tale or Stepford Wives? <laughs> They're terrible, but. Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Billie Holiday or Nina Simone? Whose world would you rather live in? <laughs> Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday. Okay, next. DC Universe or Marvel Universe? Marvel. Marvel. <laughs> okay, so the next one is Korean series. The Kingdom or Crash Landing on You? The Kingdom. I don't watch Korean series. <laughs> so the Kingdom is a period piece where there's a plague in the kingdom, and, right? Yeah, the zombies, you know, take. Oh, I'll go with the zombies. Okay. <laughs> crash landing, the, the main, the, the actress, right, the main character lands in North Korea. No, uh, the main so character is the guy, the, uh, the it's a, it's soldier a from right? the, yeah, yeah. Rom-com, yeah. I'm for the, the zombies. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay, next one. Bling Empire or Crazy List Asian. <sighs> LA rich, Singapore <sighs> rich. <laughs> No. <laughs> oh, crazy rotations. Okay. Katrina. Crazy rotations. Okay. Miss Universe or Bollywood movies? Bollywood movies. Miss Universe. Wow. <laughs> okay, the last one. Cooking with Paris Hilton or keeping up with the Kardashians? Cooking with Paris Hilton. Keeping up with the Kardashians. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's pretty much our game. 
This is very quick. Those choices are terrible. I know. They're supposed to be hard. Just for fun. Either Crazy Rich Asians or Blink. I'm like, is this like choosing between two evils? Yes, basically. Exactly. (laughs) And... No, but there were some good ones like Billie Holiday. I mean, well, yeah, not, not, not the greatest lives, but, but that, that is hard. <laughs> but, I'm like, why are you making the choice? They're all kind of terrible for women, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, where can we follow your works? And uh, you know, whether write, writing or your organizations. Um, Corey, go ahead. Uh, okay, I'm involved in a couple of projects. So I do dramaturgy work for Tactility Studies, um, which is a long-term performance project uh, with two other collaborators from Singapore looking at uh, touch, consent, um, um, the body as theatre. Um, and you can follow that at facebook.com slash tactility studies. Um, I have a site that I occasionally post things on that has been much reduced um, over the pandemic, but it's at intimatecritic.substack.com. It's a substack, so you can subscribe to very irregular missives from me. Um, and I work as an assistant editor with Academia SG, which is academia.sg, which looks at um, scholarship in, of, and about Singapore. And I also am a contributing editor and resident critic with Arts Equator, and that's at artsequator.com. And my main website is corrie-tan.com. I'm at katrinasantiago.com. This is the 2008 website um, that I've continued to maintain and write in um, as long as the headspace permits it. Um, my organization is People for Accountable Governance and Sustainable Action, um, which is pagasa.ph on Instagram and pagasafb on Facebook. Um, we are also, uh, we did start uh, a scenography exhibition with a um, with the Benilde Arts and Culture Cluster, um, the College of St. Benilde um, School of Design and the Arts is where I teach. And so I do um, curator work for Exena and we just finished with the first um, installment. And so we're looking at doing another one within the year. So you can follow that on Facebook. I think Exena XC, X, sorry. Again, um, we're, we're on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash X-S-C-E-N-A. Yes, thank you, Corey. Um, and I don't know when you're going to come out with this, but I did get into the... As, see, this is why I'm really bad at these things. Um, I'm really terrible at selling myself. Uh, I got into the feminist journalist program of the Association for Women's Rights in Development. And that's, I think they're going to do an announcement um, tomorrow. Um, And that should mean a couple of projects with um, feminist journalists across um, the world. It's a global program. Um, Yes, I'm surprised as you are. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm still surprised. Um, And it, it kind of it it really is a gift more than anything because they there's a huge um, 
there's a huge fund that they're giving each um, writer or journalist that gets into the program. And so I do want to funnel a lot of that into the projects that I mentioned I felt was needed for the region as well. Um, so that should also be up on most of the work that we're going to put out will be on the AWID Women's Rights Facebook page. Um, and then I'm Radical Chick Online. So that's my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook, and even my website. That's Radical with a K. Thank you. Um, thank you both of you so much for talking to us. I loved that conversation we just had. And I love seeing you guys, your faces again. Yeah! It's so online. I'm so happy. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you so much to both of you. Take good care. And re we really hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, wait, 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 Katrina. Wait. Um, where can we find your books? Because you just came out with Of Love and Other Demons. Lemons. Lemons, sorry. Of <laughs> Love that. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> oh, I'm also, yeah, see, this is why I'm really bad at telling myself. Um, I, I also own a small press, um, which is called Everything's Fine. We're on, you can buy our books on everythingsfineph.com. And that's also where my books are. And we can order internationally. There's yes. Okay, wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. We'll Thank see you, you soon. Take Thank good you. care. Bangkok Offstage is created, hosted, and edited by Gatakit Bunkan and Amitha Amranand. The intro and outro tracks are Quicksand by Wild Light and Probably Shunt by Jay Lang. <laughs>